Welcome to Classic Lutheran Preaching, C.F.W. Walther. C.F.W. Walther was a parish pastor, later professor and first president of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. He was also the first president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. These sermons were preached from 1840 to 1870, predominantly in congregations of the St. Louis area. Unfortunately, we do not know the specific dates and locations of most of these sermons as they have been lost to time. These sermons were originally preached and published in German and translated by Donald Heck. They're available in two volumes from Concordia Publishing House, St. Louis, Missouri, cph.org. Thank you for listening. The Epiphany of Our Lord Dear friends in Christ, If one superficially ponders how God distributes his means of grace among the nations, it's easy to think that he has always limited his grace to one particular nation. This, though, still dominates Jewish thinking today. They suppose that they alone are destined to salvation. They think that God has rejected all heathen, but this error is contrary to God's honor. Divine revelation assures us of the very opposite. It says that God's grace is worldwide, including all men. We are told, There is no injustice with the Lord our God. 2 Chronicles 19. Peter and Paul repeat this in the New Testament in the same words. In Ezekiel 33.11, this is stated even more clearly. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Paul expresses the same in the words, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2 verse 4. And Peter, God is not in wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 2 Peter 3. From this, it is very clear that God does not want the death of a single heathen. He is not willing that even one heathen is lost, but that each of them come to the knowledge of the saving truth. God, however, was not satisfied with even such proofs of his universal grace. From the beginning of the world, he clearly revealed that the Redeemer promised in paradise was for all nations, hence for all the heathen as well. Yes, the Lord said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that through one of their descendants, not only their family, but all nations and families of the earth should be blessed. Jacob, on his deathbed, called the expected Savior the ruler to whom the nations would cling. All the holy prophets from Moses until Malachi invite all heathen to wait for, to hope for, to take comfort and rejoice in the Messiah as their comfort. As soon as the forerunner of the Savior was born, God opened the mouth of Zechariah to rejoice that the day spring on high had visited the Jewish people, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. God did not promise the Redeemer only for the Jewish nation, but for the heathen as well. On three different occasions, he announced this counsel of grace to all men, and called them into his kingdom of grace. 
The first time the gospel was proclaimed to all men was in paradise through Adam. The second time through Noah. The third time through the apostles, who were commissioned to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. They actually carried out this command so that Paul could assert, Their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. Romans 10. In another passage, Colossians 1.23, he says that the gospel is proclaimed in all creation under heaven. These are the three different eras in which the gospel was preached to all peoples and to all nations of the earth. Of course, God chose the Jews before all the other nations as his own, established a covenant of grace with them, and most important, gave them his revealed word. Paul answers the question, What advantage has the Jew by saying, Much in every way? To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, Romans 3. Yet God did not wish to give his grace to the Jews alone and deny it to the heathen. The Jews should hold the light of divine revelation not for themselves alone, but for all nations. For that reason, God had the Jews live in Canaan, the center of the world. For that reason, he let them be moved from country to country, nation to nation, and be scattered throughout the world. For that reason, he did such great extraordinary signs and wonders among them, the news of which resounded to the ends of the earth. The Jews were to be like a city on a high mountain, like a beacon built on the highest peak to shine far and wide. Thus the heathen world, sunk in idolatry, should again have the opportunity to come to the knowledge of the true God. It is, of course, true that despite all of God's arrangements to give the heathen his saving word, countless millions were deprived of God's word through the guilt of their ancestors. They sank back into the night of heathen ignorance and superstition. The conversion of the heathen is and remains a duty to be shared by everyone who calls himself a Christian. Even though the neglected heathen are lost because of their sins, God still demands their blood from the hands of Christians. Mission work is an obligation of Christians. We read our text, Matthew 2, 1-12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. After he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going into the house, 
They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The word of the Lord. The Christmas text related to the revelation of the newborn Savior to the people of Israel. Today's text, just read, related the first revelation of the newborn Savior to the heathen. Hence, in the past twelve days we have, so to speak, celebrated the Christmas of the Jews. Today we celebrate the Christmas of the heathen. This concerns us above all, we who descend from heathen ancestors. Therefore, we are in order to mention today that work by which ever more heathen should be brought to the knowledge of their Savior. I mean mission work. For that reason, let my theme today be mission work, a Christian obligation. I will show you why mission work is an obligation of all Christians, and then why this work is especially our obligation. My friends, the first fruits of the heathen were led to Christ in a wonderful manner. In an eastern country far from Judea, probably Persia, a supernatural star appeared to several wise men. God had revealed to them that this star portended the birth of the King of Grace, long expected by the Jewish people. Immediately, the wise men set out for Jerusalem, the capital of the Jews. Upon arrival, they asked, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. What happened? King Herod immediately summoned all the chief priests and scribes, asking them where, according to the scriptures, the Messiah would be born. After they showed him from the prophet Micah that he must be born in Bethlehem, the king directed the wise men to this little town. They followed his directions, and lo and behold, they found him whom they sought, fell down before him, worshipped him, opened their treasures, and afterward, carrying the eternal treasure of saving knowledge in their hearts, they returned home. The amazing thing in this story is that the wise men were led by a supernatural star to Judea. Yet what is still more amazing is that God did not choose the star to lead the wise men directly to Bethlehem, but first detoured them. Herod, with his chief priests and scribes, must first show them from God's word that Bethlehem was the place where Christ could be found. The all-wise God had the most wise, important reasons for proceeding thus. Without a doubt, one was this. God wished to show for all time to come that it is not by miracles, nor by stars, nor by angels, nor by extraordinary heavenly appearances, but through men, yes, through his established church, that he wishes to lead the heathen to his dear son. In short, mission work is the obligation of the church, of Christians. Unfortunately, only too many, even good Christians, treat mission work indifferently. They think that they can either do mission work or leave it undone. They can either interest themselves in it or not. And they argue that since today the needs within Christendom are greater than can be met, mission work is really a burden. Therefore, in these distressing times, Christians should not be concerned about that. They feel that we should discontinue mission work in order to not hinder progress in other important areas. But such Christians err. 
The Christian church is a debtor to the whole world still living without Christ. She must kindle the heavenly star of the word and lead the heathen to Bethlehem. This is pictured to us not only in our reading today. All holy writ clearly evidences this. When Christ departed this world, he said to his disciples, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew 28. Of course, Christ, with these words, made all humanity their field of operation. But they were not the only ones to whom these words applied. They were not the or they were the root of the tree planted by Christ, which should finally overshadow the whole world. They were the representatives of the whole church. It was, therefore, really the church of all ages whom Christ commissioned. It is the church upon whom he laid this great obligation. It is the church to whom Christ entrusted his word. That is why Christ also added the promise, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The apostles have long since died, and though they filled the whole world with the sound of the gospel, millions still sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. The words exhorting loudly, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, still resound in the ears of Christ's church. It will continue to resound until the fullness of the Gentiles has entered Christ's kingdom, and that is, until judgment day. But who is the church? The church does not consist only of clericals, the priests and bishops, but of all Christians. Hence the word of the Lord, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, applies to you. Yes, you who through a living faith have entered the communion of the church. You have taken over your share in the universal obligation of the church. You have promised to do mission work to the best of your ability. This work, however, is not only an obligation of Christians because Christ has expressly said it is. Even if Christ had not spoken a word, Christians would recognize it as their responsibility. Now tell me, does not every Christian owe God a debt of love? But can a Christian say he loves God if he can calmly see Satan, the enemy of God, holding millions of people captive? Can a Christian say he loves God if he can calmly see that the greatest miracle of God's love is still in vain? That in vain he became a man for them? In vain he suffered for them? In vain sweat blood for them? In vain died on the cross for them? In vain redeemed, atoned, and won salvation for them? Can a Christian say he loves God? If he can calmly see that millions do not know God, serve Satan instead of God, blaspheme instead of praise God, dishonor his name instead of sanctifying it? No. As certainly as the love of God remains a Christian debt even in all eternity, so certainly is a Christian also obliged to share in the work of missions. Satan's kingdom must be destroyed and his booty, which he robbed from God, taken away. On the other hand, God's kingdom, the kingdom of light, grace, righteousness, and blessedness must be increased, and thus the whole world become ever more full of his praise, his honor. You, who because of indifference are no friend of missions, you who will not contribute of your possessions toward the advancement of this work, you 
still do not love God. Where there is no love, there is no faith. Where no faith, no grace. Where no grace, no salvation. A Christian is obliged to love not only God, but also his brethren. Paul writes, Owe no one anything except to love each other. Romans 13. Are not all poor, wretched heathen also our brothers and sisters? Has not one God created us? Do we have not one father, one mother? Are not all of them flesh of our flesh, blood of our blood, and bone of our bone? Can Christians therefore say that they love their brethren when they can calmly see that millions of their brothers and sisters die without God, without light, without grace, without comfort in suffering, without hope in death, in sins, in blindness, in God's wrath and displeasure, in inexpressible misery of body and soul, and finally in despair go to hell, thus to be eternally lost body and soul? Never. He who sees his neighbor fall into the water and does not rush to give him a hand does not love his neighbor. And does he show love if he sees millions of his brethren swallowed up in the flood of eternal death and does not hurry even a little bit to help them? He who sees his brother's earthly goods on fire and does not hurry to save what he can does not love his neighbor. And does he show love if he sees the eternal fire wrap itself around the souls of millions of his brothers, but does nothing to quench the fire? Yet I doubt that in this short time, all of you are convinced that mission work is an obligation of the Christian, an obligation that Christ has not only expressly imposed upon his Christians, but which is already contained in the obligation of love to God and of one's brother, an obligation that continues into all eternity. Permit me to continue and show you that mission work is our special obligation, whose repayment God today demands more earnestly than other. There were times when Christians wished in vain to contribute something for the conversion of the heathen, when almost all heathen countries were closed to Christians, when Satan had barricaded almost all nations and continents behind seemingly insurmountable walls. Christians could do nothing but pray that God would have mercy on their lost brethren and open closed doors. These times are past. Today, Christians have access to almost every land and kingdom on earth. Growing world trade has opened the doors of all the nations of the world and all the islands of the sea to Christians. Faster ships have moved continents closer together. The barrier of language has fallen more and more. To be sure... The world does not suspect that all these great changes have a greater purpose than the one it pursues. These changes are to make a highway for Christ's kingdom. Since it is now easier to send the heralds of the gospel to all corners of the world, the obligation of Christians to carry on mission work zealously grows each day. Obviously, God wants the fullness of the Gentiles, that is, the elect of heathenism, to enter into his kingdom of grace. And as John says, gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Christians should therefore use the more faithfully and carefully this wonderful time of grace to bring into Christ's fold the many sheep who are still wandering in this world. Of course, 
Not all should and can go out as missionaries to those places where darkness still covers the earth and gross darkness the peoples. However, if God has led you to that place where opportunities offer themselves, you have to fulfill the duties of your spiritual priesthood over and against the heathen. But to leave one's present calling and devote yourself solely to missions, one needs not only special gifts, but also special unmistakable indications that it is the will of God. Therefore, when Martin Bucer wished to make it a conscious matter for Luther to interest himself more in England, he wrote to the prince in the year 1538, that Dr. Bucer indicates, Go ye therefore and teach that we do with writings. We have no command to leave our present call any further. If not all are to be missionaries, we nevertheless are to encourage those in whom we discover the necessary gifts to do this work of love, while we, according to our ability, provide the necessary means. Even now there are missionaries working in our country who can continue to work only if we open our generous hands. Oh, my friends, what excuse will we offer God if we have given nothing to carry out that holy and blessed work that is entrusted to us as Christians? Oh, how many thousands of Christians 300 years ago would have thanked God if the wonderful opportunity had been given them, which is being given to us. Not only were there times when Christians had no opportunity to share in this work, there are also at present great numbers of bitterly poor Christians who could not give even a small contribution. This is especially true in our old German fatherland. More and more are impoverished by severe visitations. Many fathers and mothers are eating their crusts with tears, not knowing where they should get food and clothing during the severe winter for themselves and their hungry, naked children. How gladly, perhaps, many of these poorest would sacrifice something for their spiritually impoverished brothers and sisters, yet they have nothing but a sympathizing heart. It is much different with us. We live in a land of great earthly blessings. Most have somewhat more than they need. Many are overwhelmed with temporal blessings. Oh, let us not forget that we did not receive these blessings to let them lie idle in our coffers, or lend them out for profit and draw compound interest, or provide an easy, sumptuous life for ourselves, or deck ourselves out in showy clothes and our rooms with splendid furniture, or build palatial homes, or expand our business endlessly, or buy one tract of land upon another. What we have is not our own. It is God's treasury. We are merely the stewards. Above all, the Christ child still lies in poverty in his manger. He wants us to join the wise men in opening our treasures and laying before him our gold, frankincense, and myrrh as traveling expenses for his journey into distant heathen countries. The Christ child comes to us in his poor members, in his poor church, in his poor lost sheep among the flock of heathenism. Oh, let us not wait until the hour of our death to pay our obligation. Then it could be easily too late. I must mention one more reason why we must recognize mission work as our special obligation. We live on land from which the original inhabitants were driven away. 
We live among heathen whose forefathers, shortly after the discovery of this land, suffered the most shocking cruelties at the hands of men who called themselves Christian. In less than about ten years, fifteen million Native Americans were murdered like wild animals by Spaniards. Hence, do not all the Christians of this land owe these miserable people a huge debt? We live on their hills and dales. We split wood from their forest. We ride on their streams. We pasture our herds on their prairies. Woe to all citizens who wish to do nothing to bring the comfort of the gospel and its eternal wealth to these unfortunate heathen. How terrified they will be when those who were driven away by us from their homeland will accuse them before God and say, God, here they are, our enemies. They drove us from our land, but they did not show us the way to your mansions. Lord, take vengeance for what they did to us. O my friends, let us not then be even harder than Herod. At least he showed the wise men the way to Bethlehem. Let us take care that the bright star of God's word is kindled for our Native American brothers. Let us bear in mind that one soul is worth more than the whole world. The world will disappear, but one converted soul lives forever and is eternally blessed in God's eyes. Should, therefore, only a few souls be won, oh, how richly would all the offerings that we brought be rewarded! God does not become tired of doing good to us. We should not become tired of doing good to our brothers. God permits the gospel to be preached to the poor especially. Let us then, though we for the most part do not belong to the rich, but to the poor of the world, give a little bit of our poverty. It is the same to God whether he helps through little or much. Let us therefore add many more ardent prayers to our small earthly gifts and God will abundantly bless us. Praise be to his glorious name by the tongues of all nations forever and ever. Amen. You've been listening to Classic Lutheran Preaching, C.F.W. Walther. These sermons are available in two volumes as a part of Walther's Works, Concordia Publishing House, St. Louis, Missouri, cph.org. We thank you for tuning in, and we pray that God's Word has and will continue to be a great blessing in your life.